Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We continue our careful, deep, and major study into the book of Daniel, and today we're looking at just three verses found in Daniel chapter 11, verses 37 to 39. I've said so many times in the past that class teacher Doug Brady has dug very deeply into the original Hebrew wording of a Bible passage, and today it really shows up as we listen. The 11th chapter of Daniel is the reception of several prophecies brought to Daniel through the angel Gabriel, but definitely sent from God himself. And this passage is one of those. I believe that you will find much that you have never heard or seen before in this lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We begin exactly at 9.15 and end in time to get into the Worship Center on the floor above us. Well, we would love to meet you if you can visit our class when you're in the Dallas area. I see Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and get a good seat. Here now is my good friend and our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. It's going to get serious these next couple of weeks. Let me tell you, those of you who did the homework and have gone through that, I don't want you to think that I've forgotten you or left you out. I'm leaning towards having one Sunday where we create our own dossier on the beast. And we put everything we know about him in one file so that we've all got it. So we will be using that information. And don't don't get rid of it, what you've done. If you didn't do your homework, go back two lessons. And right at the end, you'll see the assignment. But we've been studying the final portion of chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. How many, I wanted to, to find out, is there anybody here who anticipated where we're going next and has studied it all in the 13th chapter of Daniel? Anybody studied in the 13th chapter of Daniel yet? All right, good. Well, there is no 13th chapter in Daniel, so I just was checking on you. Just wanted to make sure we were all together on that. Now, this final part of chapter 11 has to do with the seven-year indignation. Now, that's what it's called in Daniel 11, the indignation, the period of indignation. What do we commonly know it as? The tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. It's what is described as the final week in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, right before the first portion of the chapter end... The prophet speaks of this time that's coming, and I want to now take an opportunity to show you the transition that he is making from the time of Antiochus IV to the time of the Antichrist or the beast. And so open your Bibles, if you want to, to Daniel 11, chapter 35, 
And that's where we're going to start, and we're going to look at these things, and we're going to make sure we understand this transition and what it's saying. Because Daniel 11 doesn't just speak about Antiochus. It does speak about Antiochus, but it speaks also about a guy named Titus. It also speaks about a guy named Hitler. And then it's going to speak about a guy named the Antichrist. And I want you to see it. But before we read God's Word, let's pray. Father, as we open the Bible today and we study this key prophecy, which is maybe the most difficult prophecy in the entire scripture to unravel, I pray that you will give us insight with understanding. And the Holy Spirit will reveal to us what we need to see. May the things that I learned this week, I be able to faithfully share with my friends today who, in a way that they can understand and and come to the same understanding that you've given me. I pray this will be an understanding that we'll be able to use because this time seems to be so close. I just pray, Father, that you work in our hearts Help us to see what's really happening and give us an urgency to share the good news of how you can be healed from the epidemic of sin. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Daniel chapter 11, verse 35 says, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure, until the end of time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, let's look at this first phrase here. Some of those who have insight, who would be the ones who have insight? Those who know the Lord. Okay? Now, one of the things that I tried to stress as we were going through chapter 10, and I have to keep reminding you, from whose perspective is this prophecy given? Israel. We always have to look at Israel. We need to interpret it. We interpret it from Israel's perspective, not our perspective, not the Gentiles' perspective. Some of those who have insight would be people who do know the Lord. And what will happen to them? They'll be killed. And what is God doing here to the nation of Israel? He is refining, purging, and making them pure. Did some of that happen when Antiochus came and controlled Israel. Yes, it was horrible. And it did. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died. Later, in 70 AD, an event that Jesus, as he was looking forward, saw caused him to start crying. Did that happen in 70 AD when Titus and the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem? Yes, it did. Did it happen between 1943 and 1945 when Hitler orchestrated the Holocaust. Yes, it did. But it will never have happened in the past like it's going to in the future. And in that seven-year period, really in the last three and a half years, the last 1,260 days or a time, times and half a time, that's when it's really going to be terrible. And we're going to see that uh, uh, in some of these passages today, what is going on. And how bad is it? Well, let's look what's going to happen so that you can see. What did Jesus say about this time that's coming up with the Antichrist and the refining and the purging of the nation of Israel? Do you remember how many, what percentage of the Jewish population is going to get killed? 
two-thirds, or 6.666667, you know, two-thirds. In Matthew 24, starting verse 15, he says this. Then when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Now, at what point in the final week does that occur? Right in the middle. Three and a half years. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and get things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not go back and get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant or nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight uh, will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. And then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. And unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect, those days will cut short. Think about this a second. If you were going to put Jesus' instructions in one word, what would it be? Run. Just run. Well, I have a few things in the house I need to get. No, run. I need to go back and get something out of my... No, run. Take off. It's so urgent that you leave now and you leave immediately, according to Jesus, of what's going to happen. You go back in... You'll probably get caught and die. Matthew 24 is not the only time it talks about this. In the middle of the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, it also speaks about this. We're going to start in, in verse 6 and then skip to verse 13. Then the woman, which is Israel, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. So that there she would be nourished for 1,000 260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But two wings were given, of the great eagle were given to the woman, so that she could fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he could cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It will be a horrible time. And this man who's doing this, the, who's empowered by Satan, is going to be horrible. One of the things right now that we have going for us is that the Holy Spirit resides in each of us who have been saved. Now, if I hate to tell you this. If you haven't been saved, then you're empty. And there's a spot, a vacuum inside of you that is craving to be filled. And you may try and fill it with some things that aren't going to satisfy you. And it can only be filled because it's a God-shaped vacuum. And... If you need to, to find out about that, please talk to me afterwards. But the Holy Spirit is present and he is restraining this evil from coming onto the world. But there's going to come a time soon when we are taken out. And the Holy Spirit will no longer be exercising his restraining force through us. And all hell's going to break loose. Oh, uh, terrible. Now, I'll just talk a little louder. And no. So now, uh, let's go on to verse 37. We, we didn't look at the last part, 
But there's a part that we probably need to look at again. Because I learned a few things this week that I want you to see. So in, in Daniel eleven thirty seven, it says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, if you're looking at this, we talked about this. We went at, at length, and I showed you the majority view of conservative scholars who believe, well, first of all, remember the desire of women is a hamet construct in the Hebrew, and the word woman is not in an objective position, but a subject. It's the subject. So it's the desire of women for something. And we talked about, you, you interpret this, what, in a Jewish way, right? And what you want to what we decided was, or what I said the best interpretation was, was that it was the desire to be the mother of the Messiah. And so he, this beast, will show no regard for the Messiah, which is what they wanted. Now, it's amazing how many views there are out there on this concept or this phrase. Uh, one view is, no, it's really broader than that, Doug. You see, what the desire of Jewish women was, was to have children, to bear children. That's what they wanted. You see what went through Hannah's heart as she pled with God to give. You remember Rachel and, and her inability at first to have children and how she struggled with that. A Jewish woman felt fulfilled when she had children. This guy will have want nothing to do with children under this view. And he will probably promote killing of them. The world is overpopulated anyway. We just need to get rid of these children. We don't need them. Or we only need children from special people, not the rank and file of all you filthy other people. Now, that's a view. That's a, I came across a view that I'm wrestling with maybe to change my mind and to come to understand what's going on. And I want to explain that view to you this morning so that, that you can see what's going on. You remember when we looked at the view that is talking about the Messiah, we went back to Genesis. And I think that's where you have to interpret this, back in Genesis. Do you remember when God created man, there was a time when the man was all alone? You remember that? He was by himself. No, no other human beings existed. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now, I think it's important for us to see here just a second. What is the Hebrew word for man there? It's Adam. Adam. That's not you don't use that word if you're going to refer to a female. It's, you only use that word to refer to a male, Adam. And sometimes it calls it man. Sometimes it just translates it, transliterates it to Adam in, in the first part of Genesis. Now, then God is going to comment on this time in chapter 2, starting in verse 18 and again in verse 20. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man, that is Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, there was not found 
a helper suitable for him. This phrase, a helper suitable for, is a very important phrase to understand in scriptural understanding. In the King James, where I first memorized this verse, it was a helpmeet. What does that mean? Whether you're thinking it's a helpmeet or a helper suitable for him, what does that mean? Well, there are several things we need to understand about this. Is there anybody in here who ever liked to work jigsaw puzzles? Well, my parents loved to work jigsaw puzzles, and probably 80% of the time, if you went into their home, there was one table that was dedicated to like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. Now, when I was younger, I would try and help them work the jigsaw puzzle. It would be, you'd be looking for a piece that would fit to the piece that you already have that's, that's placed in the puzzle. Now, I found it was very easy to find a piece that would be exactly opposite. Say there would be an, something coming out. I could find another piece with something coming out. Well, you can't, those don't fit. But then time I would say I would find a piece that looked like it fit and it would have an indention there and you try and put it on and it doesn't, but sometimes I would just try and push it on so that it would, it would, it would work. And yeah, I could sometimes push those pieces on, but they weren't made to fit. What I needed to find was a piece that was exactly opposite to the piece I already had so that it fit perfectly with that piece. That's part of the meaning of this phrase. He is making someone who fits him perfectly. That's number one that I wanted you to see. She is designed to perfectly complete him. That's why she fits him. Now, when the temptation came in the garden, how did Satan attack the man? Through Eve. Why? Because in his extreme intelligence, he recognized something. A frontal attack on this man, I'm probably not going to do too well. But if I can get her, who is access to his heart, I can get him. And was he successful? Yes, yes he was. Now, I want you to think now as to how we're going here. When Adam, in fact, was confronted by God, what did he say? Hey, it was the woman who you gave me. That's right. Now. Has anything changed? <laughs> <laughs> well, I refuse to answer that question on the grounds that I am riding home with my wife. Now, Satan was familiar with that weakness of the man. Now, let's talk about that. It's a good question, Don, because here's what we need to understand. What really happened in that? God designed the man to be the leader. Adam allowed Eve to lead him into temptation. He should have said, no, we're not doing that. You have this, you've made this mistake. Let's go to God and let's see if he can do something about it. Well, he agreed to. It wasn't a forcible. He agreed to because he chose her over God. I, I wouldn't say she did that. The devil was wanting to do that. He did, and he utilized Eve, and he's tried to do that. He tried to do that with Job. If you remember the story of Job, not only did he destroy all of his businesses, take away all of his wealth, leave him with absolutely nothing, he killed all his children, and did he kill his wife too? Oh, no. 
He tried to use her. Was she willing to do what Satan wanted? Yes. But Job said no. She said, just curse God and die. Curse God and die. He's deserted you. Job said, no, he hasn't. You see, that's the man's responsibility. And so as you look at this, I now want us to go to the verse we looked at last time, Genesis 3.15. You remember, this is the first prophecy in the Bible about the Messiah. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, what we looked at last time was this one little phrase, her seed. And we talked about that as the prediction of the Messiah. It could be that we missed the most important part of this verse to understanding what Daniel is prophesying here. And that's this first part. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, who is the you? Satan. What does enmity mean? Hatred, strife, they're enemies. That's what it means. He's going to make Satan the enemies of the woman and the woman the enemy of Satan. Now, does that mean that Satan can't use women sometimes? No, he can. But technically, God's saying there is enmity between these two. Now, whose man is the Antichrist? Satan's man. Does he want that man vulnerable to a godly influence of a woman? He is going to do everything he can to keep that man away from woman. He doesn't want him to have this, to be able to, he doesn't want a woman to be used to the way she, he used a woman to take Adam down to be able, a woman to be used to take the Antichrist away from him. Yes. But didn't, um, after they ate the fruit, Adam separated himself and called her Eve and said, you're to make children. Well, I think God set that up, the, the plan for the children. And he was the one that showed them all about that. So I don't think it was necessarily a separating of themselves. I think the bond was still there. Now, I want you to see something here. Because this is important to understanding how God designed things. You see, the beast will care nothing for the love, loyalty, and devotion of a woman. But he does understand this. That a man who has a partner, and I, I shouldn't use that word because of how it's used today, a man who has a wife who really loves him, who he knows loves him unconditionally, he knows is loyal to him, and will be loyal to him no matter what, who will do everything she can in being devoted to him, makes him more than he can be amazingly more than he can be without her. And in fact, I know that from personal experience. I've seen it in my life. Those of you who've seen it in your life, you know this. He says, I don't want that to happen to my man because she could be used to take him away from me. So that is a second. And I, am, I haven't decided which one I really want to except as the true interpretation of this. But it's something I wanted to share with you so you could consider that because I think both of them are strong and both of them are biblically sound. Now, you look at the last part of this verse, we didn't look at. The enmity, by the way, 
I want you to see this. If you were to look and follow this concept through, you look at the last part of this verse, and what is it saying about the beast and God? Nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Do you remember when Satan rebelled? What did he say? I'm going to be like the Most High. And basically saying on the same level. He's now through in the beast is saying, I'm above everything. I have no regard for any other God. I don't care who it is. I'm going to magnify myself. It's going to be a, a plan of self-exaltation followed by self-deification. You must worship me. Does God want to share his glory with anyone? In fact, this man is going to get to have the first 100,000 years in the lake of fire all by himself. First thousand years, I've said 100,000, I meant thousand, the millennium. Satan won't be in the lake of fire with him, he and the false prophet for the first thousand years. He gets to share that. And I wanted you to see that because it's going to be important later. Now, look at this deification process. In Revelation 13, starting in verse 3, it says this, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast. Will he be successful in this self-deification process? Yes, he will. And he will. And we're going to show some of the reasons why after a while. The beast will claim to be God himself and therefore worthy of world domination. Now, I want you to think about this just a second and how people are going to think. Right now, what is the best form of government that there can possibly be? Democracy. No. <laughs> Dictatorship. Dictatorship is the best form of government if you have a perfect dictator, right? When the millennial kingdom comes, who will be in charge? Jesus. He will, it's a dictatorship. He's in control of everything. But is it going to be the best government we've ever seen in the history of the world? Absolutely. It'll be the kind of place we want to live. Satan's going to say, no, my man is the one. Let's make him dictator of the world. Do you remember when, he, when Satan tempted Jesus? I'll give you all these kingdoms. Would it have been a temptation if he couldn't have done it? Would Jesus have known if he couldn't have done it? He knew he could do it, but he rejected it. This is the man that's going to get that, and he is going to, everyone will worship him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The beast opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. How a created being can claim to be the creator, I don't know, but he is going to do it. And he is going to achieve world domination. Look at Daniel 11:38. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know, and he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Now, the first thing you say there, wait a second. What did verse 37 say? It said, he will be, put himself above every God or object of worship. And now he's honoring a God of fortresses? 
Well, you got to understand what that means. This word fortresses, first I want you to look at it. It's ma'uz, and ma'uz really means a means of protection or means of stronghold. But sometimes in Hebrew, to get the real understanding of the word, you have to go back and look at the word that it came from. This word ma'uz is not the original or a base word. It comes or originates from a word azaz. And azaz means to be strong, to prevail, to make firm, or to strengthen. What this God is, is military might. This is what he in effect worships, military might. I need to have the most superior military forces in the world, and I can dominate the world. Did we not see that in Rome? They had the most superior military forces, and they dominated the world at that time. So what this God is, is military might. It's a God promoted by Satan. Do you remember the conflict between Cain and Abel? Cain said, basically... I can make things right through force. I can be right through force. This God that he is going to worship will have one key policy. Might makes right. Might makes right. That's, that's going to be his policy. Do you remember uh, that he has no regard for any other gods? He just has regard. Now, he will also, if you notice in the second part of this verse... He will be extremely materialistic. Why? Because money or wealth buys might and power. And he's going to be investing in his military might over and over and over. He's completely materialistic and seeks to accumulate wealth. And his wealth is going to go to acquiring this power or might. If you look in Revelation chapter 13, the last part of verse 4, it says, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? This is the guy no one can beat. We need to be on his side or we lose. In effect, this man has four purposes that he is going to follow. First and foremost, I want control and sovereignty. I want control and... Well, sovereignty doesn't that belong to God... No, it's going to belong to me, he says. I'm God now. And I will force you to do whatever I want. Second, he's going to seek to achieve that end by acquiring means to invest in military might that is superior to anyone who could oppose him. Thirdly, he's going to use his wealth to buy allies and support, as you're going to see. And finally, it's going to end in self-exaltation leading to self-deification. Look back again at Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, let's suppose you were reading a complaint filed by a police officer following a shooting. And he said, I saw the man, and he had a revolver. And he was making threats. Do you think the defense attorney could get anywhere saying, well, he saw the revolver, but he didn't see that there was any ammunition. He didn't have any bullets. Doesn't say he had bullets. So it's really, there's nothing to worry about just because he has a revolver. No, 
Uh, any defense attorney has said that is a fool. Now, most of them are anyway, but no, wait, I didn't say that. But the fact is, you know, what do they have to work with? <laughs> Just be, because it doesn't say there's not any shells doesn't mean there's not shells in the gun. And if you're going into a fight, if you have a weapon, it's a weapon that you intend to be able to use. Now, in this verse is the Antichrist going into a fight. What's he riding towards? Conquering and to conquer. That's to make more and win, right? Isn't that what conquering is all about? Yes. If you look at this word, and whether it's in the Greek or in the English, it's the same. Now, it says, I've heard someone say, well, he's got a bow, but it doesn't say he has any arrows. <laughs> we'll give it a bow. No. He has a bow in his hand. He has access to arrows. Don't have to say he's got a bow and arrow to be able to say he's going to fight into a war. And this guy we know is smart. He doesn't go unloaded. And so he is now going to do battle and he is going to conquer. And the one who conquers is the one with the superior might. And that's why he worshiped the God of military might. Look again at Revelation 13, 7. It was also given him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And to have authority over every tribe, every people, tongue, and nation was given to him. Now, who gave it to him? Satan. Who allowed Satan to give it to him? Because this was all part of his plan. You think, wait, world domination by the most evil man to ever live? That's part of God's plan? Yes. One of the reasons is, is because this world is going to be paying for her sin. And her rebellion. And a lot of us would say it's about time. If you think about it, even if you just look at our nation, are we not due judgment and the punishment that follows it? Yes, we are. And we are probably doing less evil than so many other parts in the world. Now, that's a supposition on my part because I don't live in those other parts of the world, but I think we're behind them. Now, Look in verse 39. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. First, fortresses. I thought he believed in the god of fortresses. Well, that's because you're reading it in English. In Hebrew, it's a different word. The word in verse 38, the god of fortresses, is not the same word. This word is mibsarah or mibsah. And it means a fortification or a stronghold. It's a different word than used in verse 38. And he will use his military might to attack and subdue well-fortified strongholds. That's part of the conquering and to conquer. Now, if you know anything about some of these things, some of these people have tremendous strongholds where you can't get to them. You know, they're buried numbers of floors down under the ground and they have this concrete that can withstand all of these different types of explosions and everything like that, he will conquer. And what is he going to have to help him? The help of a foreign god. Now, that's the word they translate that. I don't like that word foreign. Think about it. What's, what is a foreign god? From another, well, in our country, we know about, there's no real foreign gods. We know about Allah. We know about Buddha. We know about Confucius. We know about some of these others that I can't remember right now. Yeah, who, and don't intend really to remember. But the fact is 
This word is nakar in Hebrew. And it again is a word that's not an original word in Hebrew. But nikar is the word that is used to describe as an adjective. But the verb is nakar with an A instead of an E. And it means something that is disguised, misconstrued, to disguise oneself. The foreign god here is Satan. And they're going to worship him. Remember it said in Revelation that they will be worshiping the dragon because he gave his power to the beast. And then they worship the beast. He is disguised. He is going to make this Antichrist, Satan is, appear to be killed and then raised from the dead. Now, why would he do something like that? But this is what is happening. This foreign God means Satan. Satan will be actively fighting with the beast to overcome and help him to dominate the world. Is any human power alone without the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit going to be able to fight against successfully a Satan-backed force? A Satan-energized or empowered force? No. And who knows, he probably will have some Nephilim fighting with him. Nephilim. A mixture of human and angelic demonic beings. Right. Not you. You're, you don't qualify as that. No, it's not a nephew. Nephilim. But, all right. So let's just move on. Now, consider what he's going to be doing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, it says this. That is the beast whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders. Now, in effect, Satan will be performing miracles through this man, or miraculous events through this man and his cohort, the false prophet, that are amazing. You know... If you look in the Old Testament, one of the singular miracles that God was able to do and give a man the power to do was to call fire down from heaven. And who was that? Elijah. And no one had ever called fire down before. No one really has ever since. Satan is going to give them the power, especially the false prophet, to call fire down from heaven and burn things up. Now, it's probably some kind of trick. But the fact is, it says he's, he's going to be able to do that. And look what else it says. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, he will be deceiving all these people. That's why it's called false wonders. False wonders. Then in Revelation 13, it says this. And the dragon gave him, the beast, his power and his throne and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And this fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now look at the false prophet a second in chapter 13, verse 12. And the false prophet exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and to come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
Now, moving on in this passage, it says the beast will bestow honor and authority on those who aid or join him. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. He's building coalitions and he's doing it by if you support me, I will give you some of what I win. If you don't, I will kill you. Well, that's an easy decision for most people. And he not only that, he will cause them to rule over the many. He will give them positions of authority. Now, in the millennial kingdom, who's going to do that? Jesus. And you see the imitation here of what is going on. And he is going to do that. He's going to utilize his wealth that he acquires to support his continuing conquest and to maintain his power. Mark. Do you think we'll be able to observe this from heaven? I've thought about that, and I think no. And let me tell you why I think no, because we will be overwhelmed by the horror. And that's technically our seven-year wedding feast. You don't want to be watching this stuff during your wedding. So I would say no, but that's simply, I can't cite you to a scripture that says one way or the other. Yes. I would you on the scripture basically you're watching there may be people we know that we could see how terrible that would be, especially one that say we've witnessed to and they've said no. Now, there's going to be a backlash, but I want you to be prepared for something in relation to this backlash. One of my chief research assistants has helped me with this and she has shown me these things. I want us to look for a second at Ezekiel 38, 10 through 12. We've looked at this before, but new things have come to light that I think we need to see. Thus says the Lord God in Ezekiel 38, 10. It will come about on the day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. Now, who is he talking about? He's not talking about the Antichrist. He's talking about the leader of a place called Magog. He refers to that leader as Gog. That is Russia. We need to understand it. It's going to make things that are happening on the news very clear to you if you pay close attention. And you will say, that is Gog will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. And I will go up against those who are rest, at rest, uh, that live securely. All of them without walls or having no bars or gates. Now, who is that? That's Israel. How do you know that? Well, let's go on. To capture, spoil, and to seize plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who were gathered from all the nations who have acquired goods and cattle and who live in the center of the world. If you look in Ezekiel 5.5, 5, I think you will find that it refers to the center of the world as Israel. But I want you to see something here, the center of the world. Do we have a map? If you look here, the center of the world is considered this area right here, Jerry, show them. Right there, Israel. Do you see it? If you want to go to Europe, which way do you go? If you want to go to Africa, which way do you go? And if you want to go to Asia, which way do you go? That way, you see? It's just, uh, it's the centerpiece. Every major conqueror who tried to conquer the world had to take Israel. And you've got to go through Israel to get to most of those places. Now you say, wait a second. Why 
would Russia want to take over Israel if the whole purpose is for spoil? Of all the nations in the Middle East, she doesn't have any oil and gas. All the others do. Why not? There's a joke over in Israel that says, you know, when Moses was taking the people to the promised land, he must have taken a wrong turn because he turned to where there was no oil. He should have gone this way or that way or the other way. And Israel could have been rich like these other places. But I want you to see that Israel is in reality a land of unbelievable resources. Now, we've already talked about its strategic location and how it is a land bridge between three continents and many trade routes have to go there. If you have control of Israel, you can control the Suez Canal. You can control down here in the south, right in here. You can control right in here. And you can stop up so much trade. Do you remember what happened when the ship got or went aground in the Suez and it just stopped everything? That's why this is such a strategic. Now, up to now, and I use the word now generally, there was no oil and gas in Israel. Ah, but somebody is right. That has now changed. Let me show you something. Next map. They have found the Leviathan natural gas field right here off the western coast. There are other natural gas locations in there, but this basin is of extreme importance right here. This one's called Leviathan, and there's these other, towards there's another big one in here. If you were to look at the natural gas, they believe that they have made in this massive discovery, it would keep, it would make Israel absolutely energy independent. And soon they would be exporting energy to both Asia and Europe. The Leviathan field alone is estimated to hold 20 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. It's enough to supply Israel for 100 years, plus an excess. Now, who is supplying Europe with natural gas right now? Russia. Its economy is dependent on that supply. What if Israel started supplying Europe with natural gas. It would destroy the Russian economy. Oh, is there any reason to come down and attack Israel now? Sure. Now, now the questions will be afterwards. Russia, when this discovery was first made, contacted Israel. And they said, you know, Lebanon thinks this is theirs, and Egypt thinks it's theirs, and Cyprus thinks it's theirs. We believe it's yours, so we would be willing to send Russian troops and Russian Navy to protect these gas fields for you. Would you like us to do that? Well, that's very nice of you, Russia, Israel said, but I, we think not. Yes. Thanks, but no thanks. Why do you think that was happened? So, but that's just natural gas. Yes. They were also planning a pipeline from, from that field to... Europe, and two months ago, Biden canceled back in Joe did that, didn't he? All right, well, we'll see. Now, they have also recently found an extremely rich oil field in the Golan Heights. Now, you remember the Golan Heights are up here at the very top part of Israel, and that used to be belong to Syria, and then we took it 
our real president, Donald Trump, said the Golan Heights belongs to Israel. Well, recently, guess who came out and said, no, it doesn't. No, Vladimir Putin. Putin said, no, it doesn't belong to y'all. He said that in the United Nations. Oh, you're beginning to see there's, there's two hooks that, that we've come in between the location and natural gas and oil. Now, there's something else that's another part of the hook in that area. Do you know that from 1951 to 2013, there have been 178 major military conflicts around the world over water rights? Do you know, and usage, do you know that Israel, more than any, has water when all these other nations don't? And water is going to become more and more important. And is there a source of water that is basically unlimited? Yeah, the ocean. But you can't use the ocean because it's full of salt. Do you know who the leading experts in the world are for desalination of ocean water? Israel. Israel, exactly right. And they have these plants and they produce this water and they're able to export water to other people. Someone's going to want that water and access to it. Finally, a very long time ago, God dug a hole in the promised land. You know that hole by the name the Dead Sea. It's been accumulating minerals since the time of the flood. 34% of the known useful mineral content of the world is located in the Dead Sea. When I first read that, I couldn't believe it was right. I had to check it. That just can't be. That sounds just way too. Strategic minerals such as potash and bromine are there in abundance. The wealth in the Dead Sea has been estimated to be four times the wealth of the United States of America. That can't be. And yet, it is. There's enough chemical fertilizer there to fertilize the entire earth for a number of years. The entire earth fertilized from just the Dead Sea, from that one hole. And let me ask you something else. What can you make from fertilizer, chemical fertilizer? Explosives, exactly right. Can you see why Russia will come to capture spoil and to seize plunder? Can you see that this is going to happen soon? Do you not see that Ukraine, Ukraine is a precursor of coming? Do you not see what they're establishing military strongholds in Syria for? They're coming after Israel. I've never seen things so close in my life before. Now, what is going to happen when they come? Well, let's go back to 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around, and I will drive you on, and I will take you from the remotest parts of the north. Now, not just the north. And who are we measuring it from? Israel, the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I will strike your bow from your hand, from your left hand, and dash your arrows from your right, and you will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you, and I will give you as food to every bird, predatory bird and beast of the field. Now, now they're coming down through Syria, here's Damascus, through this mountainous area. 
Do you know Russia has been accumulating a special breed of horses that are designed to carry troops and things through the mountains? Why would they be doing that? And you'll come down here to the very start of the mountain range in Israel, and right in there near Mount Hermon, God's going to kill them all. Now, you remember we talked about this. One of the reasons why we know this happens before the tribulation is because the remnants that this army leaves, what are they going to do with it? They're going to burn it for seven years as fuel. They won't have to cut wood anymore. And we talked about Kalashnikov rifles. And yeah, it, they have wooden stocks of course with the plastic stocks that say an M16 has. But I found out something this week that amazed me. Almost all of the Israeli rockets are metallic guided. They are metallic seeking. So that if they're aimed, they'll hit a tank, they'll hit a jeep, they'll hit a troop carrier, anything that is metal, a cannon or weapon like that. Russia is developing non-metallic weapons that won't allow rockets such as Israel has to hone in on them because they don't have that metallic signature. But you know something about those weapons? This non-metallic substance will burn like coal. Is that not amazing? They're developing a special kind of bow and arrow. One that when there are troops, not only will that arrow penetrate the one it's aimed at right through his heart, it'll go on and kill somebody behind him. This special new non-metallic substance is being used in those arrows. And the special compound bows that they have and then rifle type bows. And it's amazing what is going on with all of these new things. Yes. I saw the news just yesterday that the reason a lot of the Russian uh, military are breaking down is because so much of it is built wood. It's amazing what's going on in all these different things like this. Now, will Russia and their allies uh, be able to take this spoil? No. 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 So it's just sitting there for whom? Next week, we're going to look at that battle, and we're going to see who all comes in. Now, a, few time, a little bit of time for questions. I heard that um, this could never have happened until Trump made it possible for the Golan Heights because there weren't all the mountains in Israel for them to pull them down to. Yep. And the Golan Heights is through that area, and they'll want to secure those oil fields. Yes. This is a theory, but doesn't Psalm 83 have to happen first because if they're coming to a land of unwalled villages, Israel has walls everywhere right now. It very well, I believe that Psalm 83 war will occur first before the Ezekiel 38-39. Yes, ma'am. You know, the Mediterranean Sea, you have the dotted lines, kind of like what part of the sea belongs to what country, how do you determine those boundaries? It's usually by some kind of treaty. But if you notice, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Israel are now fighting over what those boundaries should be. And they are, this is the maritime boundary down here. But you notice the one up next to Lebanon, it's not agreed to. It's still, and there are all kinds of fighting. But right now, Israel's the biggest dog in that playpen there. And they're going to be pumping all that gas. But then a bigger dog which is Gog and Magog's going to show up. And then we'll see what happens until the creator of the dogs is going to intervene and destroy them.
All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could be here together. I thank you for showing us these things. Help us to realize that time is drawing short and you have expectations of your children of what they should be doing during these last days. Help us to be ready to always speak up for you. Not to worry about the consequences, but to speak your truth no matter what. To know that we have to depend on you to protect us and to take care of us. Pray, Father, that you'll stop the infant killing in our nation. Make it where it's illegal to do that. I pray that you'll make our elections fair and right in the upcoming years. And I pray, Father, that you'll come back for us soon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. 